is Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, time for episode 48 of the Barnhart Podcast. And this is a podcast where we talk about literature and food. Wait, no. It's been a while <laughs> since we've done one of these. What do we talk about? I forgot. Oh, man, this is going to be, to say this is going to be loosely thrown together is putting it mildly. Um, but at least I won't be coughing every four seconds, so... There is that to look forward to. Now, there, yes. In, in, in our little discussion before we started recording, I was going over my notes and we were talking about everything else we've missed recently. And you asked me about this, a topic called Lettergate. And I was like, I've seen this in Twitter, but I've been so focused on work that uh, I haven't looked into it. What is Lettergate? Uh, it's, it's yet another mess. But <laughs> in my opinion, it's... Um, it's kind of a distraction. I mean, it's it's informative, but in a way, it's not. I mean, I've been jumping up and down now for years and years and years trying to warn people and tell people, look, these people are a bunch of diabolical narcissists, psychopaths. Many of them are sex perverts. And one of the, one of the things that these people do is that they lie. They lie through their teeth. They lie without any hesitation. It's like it, lying is as natural to these people as breathing is to those of us who are morally sane. It just, they'll look you straight in the eye and it doesn't matter. All that matters to these people at the end of the day is power of one species or another. For some people, um, sex is what's, or, or perverted sodomitical acts is what the main manifestation of their lust for power is. For others, like Bergoglio, it's more, it's more of a political power, not to say that I, that I don't think that he's not a sex pervert. I think he is a sex pervert. But I think what's, what's primary in, in terms of anti-Pope Bergoglio is just his personal power. And people have been warning about this since, since five years ago in a few days now, the 13th of March, 2013, the Argentinians were trying desperately to tell everybody within minutes of him appearing on the loggia this guy is a Peronist. He's a, he is absolutely drunk with power. Everything is about playing this diabolical narcissist game of just inflicting your will on other human beings. And he'll, he'll say one thing in one moment and then say the diametrical opposite in the next without any hesitation whatsoever. He will look you in the eye and lie to your face. He is a, he is a wicked, wicked man. And people were desperately trying to warn all of us about this, but of course nobody would listen. And the primary reason that nobody and people still don't, still continue to not listen and not want to hear any of this is first and foremost because there is nothing in the world so attractive to fallen human beings as a person who will ratify them in their sins. Now, you you dress a man up in papal white and have everybody mistakenly calling him the Pope, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, and have this man stand up in front of the world and ratify the world in its sins, first and foremost, its sins against the Sixth Commandment, all of them, all of them, homosexuality, um, adultery, divorce and remarriage, all of this, all of this nonsense. He's ratifying people and all of that. But then even beyond that, 
all of the people who have apostatized, all of the people who have left not just the Catholic Church, but people who have just, you know, completely and totally um, rejected rejected Christianity in total, what he's doing is he's he's basically saying to all of those people, you were right to do that. It's all BS. None of it matters. It's all irrelevant. And I'm here to ratify you in your sins and tell you that um, you can do whatever you want. Um, and a little bread and wine does no harm. That's a direct quote. That's a quote from anti-Pope Bergoglio. A little bread and wine does no harm. He told that to a woman in Argentina over the phone after he had ascended to um, his his usurpation of the Petrine Sea. He technically can't usurp the Petrine Sea. It can't be usurped. But his masquerading as Pope after that had happened, he called some woman who he knew back in Argentina and told her to go ahead. You know, she, she was divorced, civilly divorced and then quote unquote remarried. And he told her, go ahead and, and receive Holy communion because quote, a little bread and wine does no harm unquote. Um, and so this business of having him ratify people in their sins, this is a position of, of power I I can't think, I'm hard-pressed to think of an historical context wherein a person had had so much power simply because, you know, Satan knew and set the chess table that if you dress a man up in white and call him the Pope and then have him just start telling everybody that none of their sins are sins, that they are their own God, that their conscience is supreme, that their conscience is in fact God, their conscience is the arbiter of truth, the arbiter of right and wrong, and even the arbiter of reality, <coughs> that, that, that that man could basically do anything, anything he would want, and people would just turn and look the other way. And and look what we're seeing now. So again, this letter gate thing, I, I, I suspect that most of the people who are listening to this know what it is. I'll, I'll recap and talk about specifics about it in a moment. So just a few weeks ago, we were all talking about the fact that anti-Pope Bergoglio is actively, actively protecting clerics and prelates in South America who are sexually abusing young men, specifically seminarians, but presumably other young men and boys as well. Um, what, what happened to that? That's just all completely gone. This is, and this is one of the things that ever since I've started blogging and doing punditry and all that, it's, it's so frustrating, this 36-hour news cycle, and how when the next story comes down the pike – Everything before is almost completely forgotten, disregarded. It's just gone. We're talking about this guy, Bergoglio, this filthy, filthy wretch of a man, actively protecting these men in South America who are sodomizing and and just destroying the lives of of young men who are in seminary, presumably training to be to be priests at the altar at the altar of God and to offer the holy sacrifice, and oop, it's all it's all forgotten, it's all gone. Then the week after that, it, the news broke that this it, that Bergoglio is basically his right hand man, this Cardinal Maradiaga um, from Central America. This guy has 
<laughs> has all of these fags living in the the chan the in the I guess you call it the chancery or the rectory or whatever you call it. All of these fags living in there with him. Then it's exposed that um, that Maradiaga's right hand man there in I believe it's Honduras. Um, he's got he's got this uh, sodomitical sex partner who who is masquerading as a priest isn't isn't a priest isn't ordained might not even be baptized we have and there's testimony that this guy is hearing confessions concelebrating mass with the bishop this man isn't a priest and isn't and nobody can even find any record that he's even baptized not that that i mean it just it just adds another layer onto it but the fact that you've got a priest hearing confessions and and this these guys are openly living basically as sodomites inside uh, inside the chancery there in in Honduras and this is this is Bergoglio's right hand man Maradiaga no, and oh just a few days ago um, even though Maradiaga just turned seventy five. Uh, Bergoglio sent him a glowing, glowing letter telling him that, oh, no, I want you to stay right where you are. Uh, I don't want you to to resign and retire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just it's just all gone. Nobody's talking about this. So now we get to Lettergate. OK, so here's what I think happened looking at at the timeline of all of this. It looks like in in early January, um, somebody at, at Bergoglio's, uh, behest sends a letter to the Pope, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger sends him a letter and says, we want you to write a glowing review of this series of books that's coming out on quote unquote, the theology of Francis. Um, so Pope Benedict, uh, being a gentleman, being a Bavarian gentleman, but also being weak, writes back a letter, has some really weird constructs and, and so on and so forth. Kind of, there's aspects of it that don't sound like him. For example, he, um, he, in the very opening of the letter, he said something about, um, Put it, putting to rest any of the the foolish claims that that uh, Bergoglio is not well formed in theology or, and philosophy, and again, I'm I'm heavily heavily paraphrasing that. Um, le- in fact, let me pull it up. I've got it right here. Quote: This is this is from the letter. This is the second uh, paragraph. I applaud this initiative that wants to oppose and react to the foolish prejudice in which Pope Francis is just a practical man without particular theological or philosophical formation. While I have been only a theorist of theology with little understanding of the concrete life of a Christian today. Okay. That paragraph right there, there's so much about that. That is just so not Ratzinger. First of all, for Ratzinger to use the word foolish, even in the context of foolish prejudice. Um, it just really doesn't sound like him at all. And then for him to go on in that second part where he refers to himself, um, Ratzinger is absolutely famous, notorious, whatever you want to call it, for his loathing of, of self-referentialism. He just pathologically will not refer to himself, especially in writing like this. Now, I mean, this is, this is all very speculative, so on and so forth, but 
It goes on, um, the next paragraph, the small volume show rightly that Pope Francis is a man of profound philosophical and theological formation, uh, which he, he, he most certainly is not. And they therefore hope to see the inner continuity, and there's everybody's freaking out about that, inner continuity between the two pontificates, despite all the differences of style and temperament. Um, well, and this is allegedly from somebody who coined the phrase hermeneutic of com- continuity. And so this would be an exponential stretch of the term, I would imagine. Uh, Yes, putting it mildly. And then it goes, he goes on to say, however, I don't feel like writing a short and dense theological passage on them because throughout my life, it has always been clear that I would write and express myself only on books I had read really well. Unfortunately, if only for physical reasons, I am unable to read the 11 volumes in the near future, especially as other commitments await me that I've already made. So what happened was is, um, the head of Vatican Communications, whatever you want to call it, this creature, um, Vigano, Monsignor Vigano, he reads this out at a press conference. And then um, it comes to light that they, they release a, a photograph of this letter. And, okay, the, the paragraph I just read about, however, I, deal, I don't feel like writing a short and dense theological passage – Initially, that was that was not shown, and they blurred. They they even went to the extent of blurring out a portion of it, so that you couldn't see the beginning of that sentence um, in the letter. And then the second page they had completely covered with these books. So it turns out that the the <laughs> the whole thing is basically the the Bergolians trying to put forth that Pope Benedict has just completely thoroughly endorsed um, anti-Pope Bergoglio, his theology, his philosophy, da-da-da-da-da. And, I mean, it's it's really nothing of the sort. Then you go on, to, it's, it's um, revealed or further reported, hey, wait a minute, there was an entire, there was an entire paragraph there that's kind of missing from all this that says that he hasn't read any of this and that not only that, but he has absolutely no intention of ever reading any of these books, which is kind of a, an interesting thing for him to say, not only have I not read this, but I, I am not going to read these books ever because I have other commitments that await me that I've already made. Like well, getting ready for confession or something? Yeah, (laughs) getting ready to call the press conference where you say I've made a terrible mistake. Um, In fact, it could even be called a substantial error. Um, Yeah, that 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 it just the whole the whole thing is just this exercise in in people being unclear and not saying what they think, which, you know, drives me absolutely insane. Then it comes out that there's even more. There's another paragraph. Now, how did this other paragraph come to light? Um, It's said that it was leaked to one of the Italian Vaticanistas by a person of incontrovertible credibility. Okay, who would that be? I strongly suspect that after watching all of this unfold, that that Pope Ratzinger himself, maybe through um, 
Ganswine, who is his personal secretary and also personal secretary to anti-Pope Bergoglio, and who I think is a nefarious character. <laughs> but one way or the other, I suspect that it came directly from Mater Ecclesiae, which is the, the facility that, that Pope Benedict is being held in um, there in the Vatican. An incontrovertible source contacts this Vaticanista, this Italian, and says, uh, there's, an, there's another entire paragraph that's not being reported. The other paragraph that isn't being reported says, um, by the way, I'm completely shocked and scandalized that you included this one German theologian in this series of books on the quote unquote theology of Pope Francis because this guy is an arch heretic and was basically the openly declared enemy of both myself and of Pope John Paul II. Again, I'm paraphrasing that. <coughs> so here, now it just it just keeps going and going and going. More lies upon lies upon lies. The last thing that was revealed, and this is just within the last, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, is that Pope Benedict wrote this letter and sent it and wrote all over it and all over the, the envelope that it was contained in, personal and confidential, meaning this none of this should have ever been released ever. So he wrote this letter, Pope Benedict wrote this letter in February in response to a letter that was written to him, if I'm not mistaken, in January. So here's what I suspect happened. I suspect that they sent over and wanted him to write some um, glowing blurb about this hot mess, um, try, trying to portray Bergoglio as anything other than the, the arch-heretic imbecile, slack-jawed imbecile that he is. And so they get this letter back, and they're all pissed off about it. And I think that what happened is that this is Bergoglio and Vigano and probably Tucho Fernandez and whoever else, Maradiaga, whoever else is in, is in Bergoglio's inner circle, and whoever's sitting at him at his, you know, four-hour, three-bottle-of-wine lunches that he has in the luxury hotel that he lives in every day. And I think that those bunch of perverts got all bitchy and said, all right, we're going to show him. We're going to show him. We're going to release this and make it sound like he's. this is all a, a glowing endorsement of the whole thing, which is pretty obviously what they were attempting to do. Oh, because um, God forbid anybody say anything other than positive about Pope St. Francis the first. Well, you know, and I, I don't know if, if, if they know or if they even care that, I guess that's the question. I don't know if any of those wretches even care if Bergoglio is the vicar of Christ, because again, I think, I don't think that a lot of them believe in any of it. Well, no, I if, think they, if they did, they would have called him on the whole uh, phrase about <laughs> a, little, a little bread and wine doesn't hurt. Oh, well, I mean, indeed, if, if indeed. If they were, I think we're, they, all, they, we're pretty well down clear, the path from from what do they believe when, when they don't call, yeah, they don't believe the stuff. That's, that, that, yeah, I mean, this has been my thesis for years and years and years now. I have a very famous... Uh, um, essay called they don't actually believe any of that bullshit and uh, don't don't let me forget we need to start put putting um ratings on yep, these already, podcasts already that the makes note. me remember <laughs> language warning or discussion about six commandment stuff or whatever we need to start doing that <laughs> but that is the title of the essay and, and i insist upon calling it that because i want to drive home the notion 
of the contempt that they hold the truths of the Catholic faith in. Um, so it, it, it almost isn't a question. I doubt it's a question for any of them about whether or not they, they even care whether or not Bergoglio is in fact the vicar of Christ on earth or if he's an anti-pope. I don't, I don't think they believe in any of it. So it's just, it's a completely moot point to them. They don't care. Um, he, he has the power obviously. And what they're all about is, is, you know, we've talked about the alpha and beta case of casts of, uh, diabolical narcissists. And what these guys are all about is just staying close to that power, riding the coattails of that power, um, being protected. And, you know, I wish I were being facetious, but I'm not, but being protected so that they can continue to have their gay sex orgies and they can continue to get all these drugs in and, and whatever it is that they're doing. And this is, this is fact. This is reported fact. I've been talking about this. I've been warning about this, that the Vatican is literally a bathhouse. It operates as a bathhouse. Some of them even commit acts of sodomy inside St. Peter's Basilica itself. Okay, please, for the love of God, listen to me. It was not fun finding all of that out and having it revealed to me. It was extraordinarily painful. Don't think that I just sit indifferently and, and look at all this and say, oh, well, just a bunch of fags. No. If, you know, you, you're, it's, it's painful to the, to the core of your soul when not only do you find out that stuff like that is going on, but in, in my particular case, it was in fact, in the context of someone that I had been acquainted with was one of them was a participant in all of this crap and maybe still is. And so it, it's, it's extremely painful and I don't say it, I don't say it flippantly, but I'm telling you, it is a bathhouse, drugs, sodomy, prostitutes, many of them boy prostitutes, the whole nine yards. Okay. So this is all going on and it's, it's very painful. Um, and so, oh, I lost my train of thought. See what were we talking about? We we're talking about, oh, they don't actually believe any of it. Yeah, clearly, clearly these men don't actually believe any of it. I will say though, that there are a few of them who do believe who do believe in the church, who do believe in our Lord, who do believe in the holy sacrifice of the mass, who believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And the ones that do believe are the ones that are actual practicing Satanists. Satanists believe um, that that's why they do what they're doing, because they they know that there is a preternatural reality and that there's a preternatural power structure. And again, because they are absolutely obsessed with power, their own personal power, um, and they are very much like demons. That's why we call them diabolical narcissists. They have purged themselves of all love. They have gone to war literally against God. And there are, there is that inside the Vatican. Um, I don't know which of them are, are Satanists and I don't know which of them are, um, just men who don't believe and are just diabolical narcissist psychopaths who are out for, power, money, sex, whatever, but it, it's, there's both dynamics going on there. And there are a small handful of them who actually do worship Satan and there are black masses going on. Read the Malachi Martin stuff. It's, um, it's thinly, thinly veiled, um, reportage is what basically the Malachi Martin books are. Well, <laughs> I, would, I would say there would be Hopefully, at, at least two groups in in the the Vatican structure who who actually believe in the faith that there's at least one or two or three 
at least a few who still believe in in the authentic faith, whether or not they're scared to death to admit it or not, because they they want they don't want to be silenced or or anything is another matter, which really gets into the the main well, topic. I, I guess we were preparing for it was the whole yeah. idea of of um, censorship and whether it's self censorship or imposed censorship. I was pulling this up um, actually as you were lost your train of thought momentarily, and, and, and mm-hmm. I was I was afraid you were going to ask me to to jog your memories. Like I forgot what I was doing because I'm trying to cue the next next topic here. Um, February twenty sixth, almost a month ago, um, we had a situation where somebody emailed in to uh, the podcast and said we can't access or I can't access Anne's website at work. And uh, long story short, where they work, they the uh, network administrators subscribe to content filtering rules uh, in addition among all the other content filtering rules they include a a list from a german government agency which lists the barnhart.biz website as being offensive to the youth of germany <laughs> yay wow. i have arrived i'm officially on a government list yeah well, absolutely i don't know that that's a good thing though <laughs> oh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, if you're not, if they don't hate you and you're not taking enemy fire, then you're not doing enough, clearly. Um, I, I thought the, the <laughs> I thought the phraseology that we used was, was most amusing, that I engage in discrimination against large groups of people. Well, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll own to that all day long. Um, before I forget, just touching back very, very quickly on there must be one or two good ones inside the Vatican. At this point, just about the only one that I can say that about would be Cardinal Sarah. But again, going now coming back forward, um, why don't, why don't these men speak up? Why don't they say and do more, um, what are they afraid of? And that, that speaks to your faith as well, uh, to a person's faith. Yes and no. What are, go ahead. I was going to say yes and no. I mean, there's there's a certain certain prudential element of if making a martyr of yourself can't save anybody's soul, then there's no point in doing it. And if, if there is somebody, I, I, I trust, I hope, that there are people in Rome who, who honestly do still believe in the faith, and they're waiting for a change in, in the environment such that truth can prevail. And when that time comes where somebody who wants to stand up for the truth needs people in the, the hierarchy, in the bureaucracy, in the uh, halls of power to back them, that's when they're going to make the move because the, they're going to be a force multiplier to enable the truth to actually come forth at that point. If they come forward at this point, what's going to happen? They get cut off at the knees and nobody will ever hear about them, just like if Pope Benedict wanted to make a statement right now, he probably would never get it out because he's probably under very tight control. There's a prudential reason to say that if somebody is of good faith and really believes in the, in, 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 in the real Church of Christ and wants to get the word out, they can't do it right now. So the best bet they've got is to wait for the, for the situation to change. I mean, no, I disagree. I think this is the easiest it's ever been in the history of the world. I mean, anyone can essentially call a press conference with with their phone. You can record a video of yourself on your phone. You can upload it to the internet and email it to multiple people so that you know the the file exists and gets populated out onto the internet immediately. Um, it is the easiest now that it's ever been, and I mean. Just look, put it, put yourself in the context 2000 years ago of, of the 12 apostles. 
Well, it's not going to do any good for you to go off and get yourself killed because you're not going, you're not going to convert any souls. You're not going to win any souls. In fact, it's just going to, it's just going to drive people away. You have to understand that if you do the right thing, God will provide. And yes, all it would take is one person standing up and saying something. And and at this point, you know my position on this. The one person who needs to stand, stand up and speak is, of course, Pope Benedict himself. And he could do it. He could call a press conference. There would be nothing that they could do. Get somebody in there w- just with their phone. That's all you need. Just get somebody in there with a phone. He makes a statement and says, I've been coerced, I've been blackmailed, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and everything changes. Or Cardinal Sarah calls a press conference, again, just with a phone, and says, there is something desperately, desperately wrong here, and the Catholic faithful cannot listen to this man, Bergoglio. Now, the problem with that is, is it doesn't go far enough because then as, and I, boy, we just keep rehashing this over and over and over and over again. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. A little bit. But if, if you, if what your premise is based on is that Bergoglio is a heretic, which of course he's a heretic, that's obvious he's a heretic. But if that's the reason why you say, well, he's not the Pope, then what do they do? They call another fake conclave with Pope Benedict sitting over there, gloriously reigning alive. And you call another fake conclave and you, you elect another, another anti-Pope and you're, you're in the same damn mess that you've been in all along, except maybe this time the guy has 30 or 40 more IQ points than Bergoglio has and is 20 years younger. And that, that's a terrifying thought. The only way forward, the only way through this is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you can't settle for anything less than that. And you, I mean, this whole business of saying, well, it's, it's a question of prudential judgment. It, it's, there's always going to be that. There's always going to be the ability to make the argument that, well, no, this just isn't the right time. I mean, I've been hearing this from people from Rome for years now, for, you know, five years, over five years now, since I've had these contacts of these people in, in Rome. From the very beginning, it's, we have to be cagey. We have to, we have to be patient and we have to pick our moments and pick our battles. And I, as I've been pointing out to these people for the last five plus years, and I pretty much quit now because it's obvious that, that nobody, none of those people are going to do anything. But what I kept saying to them is, is you are getting your ass kicked up one side and down the other day in and day out. Um, I, I would be fascinated for you to show me one example of how you have had some sort of a victory and how your caginess is paying off and how we just need to keep our heads down. People are dying every single day, ratified in mortal sin, shaking their fist at God because of this filthy wretch Bergoglio. And now certainly he's not the only one that's to blame for all this, but there are plenty of people who are dying. And, and even if this thing turns around, even if it turns around again, as we started talking about, because people are so attracted to and so loyal and so loyal to a person who ratifies them in their sins, even if this thing turns around, I mean, at this point, schism, I think the church is already schismed, but a public open schism at this point 
is, I think, completely unavoidable barring supernatural intervention. Because no matter what you do, if Pope Benedict tomorrow morning calls a press conference and that whole that whole thing gets quote unquote resolved in a sense, you have to understand that almost everyone in the Novus Ordo Church would reject him and call him a liar and say, well, no, you can't do that. Why? Why would they do that? They would do that for one reason and one reason only, because Bergoglio ratifies them in their mortal sin. And so they will defend Bergoglio. These people will defend Bergoglio and will defend the ratification of their mortal sin. Um, most of them, sadly, an up, up to and including the moment that they die. And that's that's so incredibly sad and so incredibly terrifying. And the fact that everyone is just sitting here watching and not saying and not doing anything. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. You can't sit around and wait for this thing to turn itself around because look at, look at what Bergoglio's doing. Look at how he's stacking the college of Cardinals. Look at what he's doing in terms of these, these Episcopal, appointments and moving people around and protecting people. I mean, how in the world? And the infiltration is so massive. Even the Poles, did you see this super nerd? Even the Polish bishops are getting ready to cave on, on divorce and remarriage and receiving the Eucharist. The Poles, they're, they're getting ready to throw their boy JP two under the bus in order to be in the good graces of of Bergoglio, everybody was saying, "My goodness, you know the last the last stand for the church is going to be Poland. It's going to be Poland." Nope, they're going to fold too. Jan the infiltration Sobieski is rolling in his grave. Yep, absolutely. the 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 whole question is just. It's such an infiltration. It's so intense. You can't sit around and say, well, we've got to wait for, for, you know, the climate to be right. We have to wait until we have the chess pieces in position. Oh, no. Well, to, to, <laughs> to my point, though, it, it, there wasn't just a matter of waiting for everything to be perfect where you can make a counterstrike. It also matters of, you know, who you are. I mean, obviously, if Pope Benedict wanted to make a statement, that would carry a whole lot more weight than um, some third assistant secretary to the adjunct who is an archbishop in, in somewhere in the Vatican. And if Cardinal Sarah and and uh, Cardinal Burke and Bishop Athanasius Snyder, the three of them, decided to make a statement tomorrow, it would carry infinitely less weight than if Bishop than, than if um, Pope Benedict were to say something. Well, of course, of course. And, and so yeah. the the point that I was getting at is, is that if I I would hope I trust that there are good people still left in the in the hierarchy in the Vatican, but they're not going to be they're not going to be listened to if they come out at this point. I mean, I'm, you're not the only person who, who is, who's calling out problems in, in, in Rome right now, mm-hmm. but if everyone listened to you, the problem would be over. And the question, or the, I guess the point I'm making is how high up do you have to go before people would actually listen? I don't know how high up people are in Rome who really still believe and are willing to, to, to martyr themselves. And I guess that's a different question in, as well. I mean, the martyrdom is not, is not useless. I mean, if, if there's, mm-hmm. um, if Cardinal Sarah, let's just pick on him for a minute. If he comes out and completely denounced everything that, uh, Francis is saying, Bergoglio is saying, and he literally or figuratively gets killed as a result of it, maybe that yields fruit down the road. I don't know. Yeah. But, Oh, what, I, I, what, I would have about, to think that it would. What about, and a, the same thing goes for, goes for Pope Benedict. What's, what's he afraid of? Um, 
he he gives every indication that he's been quote unquote prepared or preparing for death for years now. Um, but for but in the case of a traditional or orthodox uh, priest or monsignor, they are low enough in rank in Rome that you get stepped on on the sidewalk, nobody will notice. So sure. for those people, and I would imagine there there've got to be some. <coughs> Who, when the when the the tide changes, they are going to be great assets, great allies. But right now, what would it benefit anything for them to come out and and sound off? They'll be just yet another person getting crushed. Well, I mean, they would. You say that if they're if they're not saving anyone's souls. Well, first first and foremost, how about their own? And I think perhaps we're starting to see the beginnings of this. Um, have you seen the news out of Chicago and? St. John Cantius. Have you seen any of that super nerd? No, I've been mired in no JS modules all week. Okay. <laughs> well, um, sadly the, um, the head of, of that community, that absolutely vibrant community in Chicago, the St. John Cantius, um, group, who's been one of the foremost parishes in North America for the traditional right. Um, Supich, the odious, odious Supich, um, who's the Cardinal Archbishop of, of Chicago and just a horrible, horrible man, um, has removed him, completely removed him and says that there's allegations of, of, um, of him, this father, Frank Phillips having, um, adult homosexual relationships. Um, so I think probably, that that is, and again, I've been warning about this too. That that's what's going to be coming down the pike, and that's what's going. That's what's probably being held over everyone's head. Um, is that they will accuse people, rightly or wrongly. They will they will start going after people by declaring them to be either homosexuals or um, aphibophiles, pedophiles, whatever. <laughs> And I don't think that they would, and I don't think that they would hesitate for a second to wrongly, um, to wrongly accuse someone of that. I don't think that that's beyond the pale for them at all. They're willing to protect their own. And so I think, and I've talked about this in the context of pretty much everyone anymore is blackmailable and how intensely important it is for, for Catholics, for trad Catholics to self-police and do everything you can to make sure that sodomites are not permitted in your parishes, no turning a blind eye. It doesn't matter how wonderful the liturgy is. It, al it also doesn't even matter what Father says in his homilies or anything else. If there is any actual um, appearance, scandal, whatever, involving sodomy or any of that, we have to be absolutely, and there's only one year, one word to use, ruthless, because remember, the enemy is ruthless. And so we have to be ruthless about weeding the, these people out and weeding this stuff out. Now, I have absolutely no idea about the Chicago situation. I've actually never, never been there. I've never been to that, that parish. Um, don't know, don't know the priest, don't have any information. If it turns out to be true, sadly, I won't be surprised if it turns out to be false. I won't be surprised either. If it turns out that, that Supich and Bergoglio are now starting to go after traditionalists and all traditional parishes 
and will go in and will accuse somebody of something like this completely falsely, that doesn't surprise me either. Well, um, it, it is the Chicago way. If you can't uh, corrupt somebody or accuse them of corruption, you just burn their church down. Or, I mean, they right. have a, an accident. Well, that was a different church. That was an ins- the Institute of Christ I, I know. The King I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I'm not saying that the Cardinal burned their church down, but they that that was the other one of the other high-profile traditional Catholic churches in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nothing beyond these people and again, you just keep rubbing your head and shaking and, and people saying, well, I can't believe that a, that a cardinal or a bishop would ever do something so, so disingenuous or so dishonest. Like, God, have you have, heard of Bishop are you not Wheatland? paying attention? <laughs> What's it going to take? <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, have you heard of Bishop Weakland? Yeah, Absolutely. And who put him in place? Wasn't he a JP2 appointment? I mean... I don't remember. It's, 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 the corruption is just, it's everywhere. That's, it's, I have to admit, it's really, really dispiriting. Because when you realize how deep it all goes, and how thorough it is, and how, you know, you and I sitting here, the only, about the only name that I can come up with is... Cardinal Sarah, okay, Bishop Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who's an auxiliary in Kazakhstan, and then Cardinal Burke. But then I, I don't know. Thanks for thanks for signing on the dubia, Cardinal Burke. But um, do you think that maybe you should follow up on that, make some sort of a public correction, um, and then you know, don't even get me started on the fact that none of these guys are ever going to come out and and question the legitimacy of the Bergoglian anti-papacy. Again, this is why this is why it's on Pope Benedict's head. He has to be the one to say something. Um, and we keep praying. We keep praying because the papacy has a supernatural aspect and a supernatural protection, which actually kind of segues into another another topic that just has been bothering me through all this. There have been a couple people, a couple of trad bloggers, and again, don't need to mention names because once I say this, everyone will know exactly who it is, who used this opportunity of this letter coming out to attack Pope Benedict and say, he's horrible. He's, um, you know, he's, um, Every bit as bad as as Bergoglio. Um, they're they're exactly the same damn thing. Just their methodologies are different. And um, I, I got to tell you, I've just had I've had just about enough of these people, um, these Gen Xers, taking their their psychological issues, their abandonment issues, their their issues with their parents, and all of this and projecting it onto the Pope and onto the papacy. And that there's one thing about this that's, that seems to be really informative to me, that as all this was, was lettergate crap in the early days was going on, and I'm you know sick in bed and reading, reading the news and so on and so forth, I'm reading thousands and thousands and thousands of words that these trad bloggers are writing that are just attacking, attacking, attacking Pope Benedict. <laughs> And, you know, talking, attacking anyone who basically has any, any supernatural faith in the papacy and our Lord's promises about the papacy as being, I don't know, babies or, or, or whatever. 
And, you know, it's obvious it's what's going on with these people. And unfortunately, I, I was formally acquainted with some of them. These people have massive, massive psychological problems, massive abandonment issues, massive issues with their parents. And it just goes, you know, it goes to Gen X. And it's and I realized that there's one thing that you are not allowed to say to Gen X or or anyone later than that. And that is get over it. You're not allowed to say this. Everybody gets to have all of these abandonment issues and all these parent parental issues. And nobody will just say what needs to be said, which is get over it. Get over it. Stop using this as some sort of an excuse for, you know, your lack of faith, your, um, your completely screwed up life, your sins, <laughs> because you just know, you just know that these people go through life and I've heard it, this endless complaining about the dysfunctional childhood, about the bad parents, this, that, and the other. And it's all used as an excuse. Everything is an excuse for, well, you know, I was screwed up because my parents did this. No, 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 no. You're screwed up because you chose to be screwed up because you were stupid and made bad, horrible decisions. Quit, quit using your screwed up baby, baby boomer parents as some sort of a crutch to get you through your life. And then as I was saying a moment ago, reading thousands and thousands and thousands of words about the papacy and Pope Benedict and all of this and how horrible he is. Now it's just, he's exactly the same damn thing as Bergoglio. Well, obviously that's not true. I mean, that's just, that's obviously not true. And, and the thing that struck me is in all of these thousands of words that these people are writing, there's absolutely no mention anywhere of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nowhere. It's, and, you know, having been uh, acquainted with some of these people for a few years, um, you, you just didn't talk about our Lord I mean, that was considered, that was considered like Protestant and, and touchy feely and, uh, and, you know, trying to be, trying to be hyper pious or something like that. And you, you would get, you would get talked down if, if you talked about our Lord and you look at these people and you look at the reaction that they're having to this situation and Right now, one of these obsessions in a certain quarter of Trattyland is going forward with this this idea that um, Pope Benedict is every bit as bad, if not even maybe worse than Bergoglio. <clears throat> and all this is about are these people's abandonment issues and trying to ratify their abandonment issues and trying to project them onto the papacy. And that really gets my dander up because what you're doing, what you're doing is you're denying the supernatural aspect of the papacy and of the, the Petrine protection promised by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The inability to, to see the difference here is, I'm convinced, one of, the, one of the chief problems and one of the reasons why people are not able to process this. The papacy is different from every other office on earth because it has a supernatural protection. It's the only office on earth. And if you deny that, 
then you deny that you basically deny our Lord's divinity is what you're doing. If you deny that you're in league with Martin Luther, among others. I mean, have we not noticed, have we not noticed that in order to maintain the argument that Bergoglio is the Pope and that all of this is completely within bounds quote unquote, what you basically have to do is you have to destroy the papacy itself. And then it spills out over onto, onto Pope Benedict. Now, people have heard me say on this podcast, and I've said it in writing on the blog numerous times, for what he has done, and so long as he does not fix this and does not repent of this and this error that he's made, he is the worst pope ever. He's the worst pope ever for what he's done, but he's still the pope, and he is not Bergoglio, and he has never done anything to completely, utterly, totally destroy the 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 church to deny the existence of objective truth to deny objective moral norms um no i'm sorry and and i i really am sick and tired of hearing these these gen x people with their with their mommy and daddy issues and with their abandonment issues projecting this onto him um, and then, and then by proxy, what you're doing is you're projecting it onto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself. Everybody's abandoned me. Everybody's abandoned me. Everybody's abandoned me. And that includes now the Vicar of Christ on Earth, apparently, and also um, by extension, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because if Bergoglio's the Pope, then um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Has, has in fact abandoned us. Well, and for I, anybody who thinks that uh, everybody who's abandoned them, consider for a moment what you're saying and how it closely it mirrors Christ's words on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Now, grant that he wasn't really saying that his Father in heaven forsake, forsook him, forsook, forsook, <laughs> had, for, had forsaken him. <laughs> had but, forsaken. but the point is, if you really think that everybody's forsaken you, you've got a tremendous... Um, meditation to to consider there with regard to the passion. Mm -hmm. Even if objectively speaking it's true, it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to make light of any situations if it's really true in your situation. It's an opportunity to really unite yourself to the passion of Christ. And if it's not true, get over it, darn it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because there's, again, I think it, it betrays that lack of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, um, a failure to think about his passion, because, I mean, that's, he said that on the cross, did he not? Yeah, yes. He was on, yes. on the cross when he said that. And, it, and that's, quoting, um, that's quoting a psalm, although I can't remember which one. <laughs> um, right. It, it, was, and, it was something for the benefit, actually, of the chief priests who were there. It was one of the last opportunities for them to recognize, well, to either recognize what they were doing or to repent for what they were doing, whether or not they knew that they were putting the Son of God to death or not. Um, it, it was, it was, he was specifically calling to death or calling to calling to mind um, a phrase from the old. I want to say it was Elias, or I, I, it was in the Old Testament. Sorry, I'm Catholic. I don't know the scriptures, but um, it, it, it was the the. 
the phrase from from um, from the Old Testament where the old te- the, the priest would have known this by by heart and in reciting it and thinking about the imagery of the of the phrase that or of the uh, the scripture that they were they would have called to mind immediately would have been talking about looking upon the victim which is Christ Himself so mm-hmm. he was it was you know even at his at his worst moment Christ was reaching out to save everybody even the people who Indeed. were putting him to death out of malice. Indeed. And it's, I just think it's all very informative. So I would urge people when you're reading these commentaries, just ask yourself, where, where is our Lord in all of this? Because it seems to me that he's just, he isn't even an afterthought. He's no thought at all in any of this. Where is Jesus in all of this? And it, it, you know, talking about abandonment, even if, even if you go through your life and everyone, honest to goodness, abandons you unjustly. Your parents abandon you. And there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in the Gen X, children of the baby boomers who, yes, I'll, I'll say it. Let, let, me, let me confirm what, what so many of you suspect. Your parents did not love you and did not want you. And that's the truth. There's a lot of us who can say that, okay? We weren't wanted. We, if you had a mother that was a feminist, she might have told you explicitly that you were not wanted. They didn't love you. They didn't care about you. All they cared about were themselves. Yes, because that was the first generation, that baby boomer generation was the first massive explosion of narcissism. What is narcissism? purging yourself of love, even of your own children. Yeah, they just didn't care. Okay, yes, get over it. All of the relationships that you've had, and by the way, that's all your fault. Anything that you did as, as, a, as a person who had reached the age of reason, it's your fault. You chose your sins. And so all the people that you fornicated with who abandoned you, all this, that, and the other, all of these quote unquote failed marriages that you've had. Um, yeah, it maybe maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that, that your spouse completely abandoned you and ran off out of the blue. Happens to a lot of people, has happened to a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. What if all of your friends have abandoned you unjustly? Not, not because of anything you did or any, you know, absolutely intolerable personality disorders that you have where people just had to get away from you. Let's just say for the sake of argument that completely unjustly, every one of your friends has abandoned you. Get over it. That has nothing to do with our Lord. Our Lord is different from all of these other people in your lives. And if you, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the thing that's really interesting about that is that it gets really difficult to confuse him for anyone else. Jesus is not your mother who abandoned you. Jesus is not your husband who ran off on you or your boyfriend who ran off on you. None of those people, none of these people who have done you any wrong or abandoned you or done this, that, or the other, or abused you, none of those people are Jesus. Jesus is God. If he says, 
I'm going to set up this office. And Peter is the first one who's going to be in this office. And I am going to give a special protection to this office. And you can always look at this office and it may not be perfect, but this person, this person in this office is never going to do anything like tell you that it's okay or that I will that you commit sin, much less mortal sin, which is what Bergoglio has done. Um, you, you can trust that this person is, is going to be something that you can look to and um, I am never, ever, ever going to abandon you. Jesus is God. And so there's a completely different metric that surrounds that whole thing. And um, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, if he is just um, a social club, if he's a philosophy, if he is a set of rules and he is not and he is not a person and he's not a person who is divine and you don't, you don't have that through your head, then yes, that, that that's what this all turns into. It all turns into just mapping and projecting your mommy, daddy, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, all of your issues upon first the vicar of Christ, Pope Benedict, and then by just one very quick, simple, logical line of extension onto our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. I don't care what happens. Jesus is not going to abandon us. Never, ever, 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 ever. You take it to the bank because he's God. And if you can't get straight on that, and if your if you're psychological issues from from your childhood are prohibiting you from having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and from understanding who exactly he is, then you need to sit down and shut up and stop spewing your crap all over the internet. You need to go take care of yourself and stop this business of, of, of raging at everyone else, raging at the Pope and raging at our Lord because, you know, because your mother was suboptimal to you when you were a child, just really getting sick of this crap. And it, it really makes me angry. And, uh, I hope it's a righteous anger and, and not just a, not just a raging anger, but there you go. And now, I don't know, do we even want to start talking about censorship now? Because what did I just say? I just said people need to, people need to work on self-censoring. You need to work on looking at yourself and saying, am I in a position where I should be saying anything at all? Should, should I be censoring myself? I think that's, that's an interesting dynamic in terms of censorship that isn't nearly, um, <laughs> excuse me, explored enough. Because the mindset right now, thanks again to the American experiment, is that everyone has the right to say publicly and be heard publicly absolutely everything that flows through their mind. And that is not true. There are people who should not be speaking publicly. So there's, there's a question of censorship that is, that is almost never discussed. 
Yeah, the idea of uh, freedom of speech is a uniquely uh, American thing. It doesn't exist previously because the idea of speaking was usually tied to whether or not you had something to say and, and uh, had position to say something. But I want to go back to for a moment to uh, people who had issues of abandonment or something else. I want to quote something real quick. Take heart all or, or take all that shall be brought upon thee and in thy sorrow endure. And in thy humiliation, keep patience for as gold and silver are tried in fire. The acceptable man is tried in the, in the furnace of, of humiliation. Believe God and he will recover thee and direct thy way and trust in him. Keep his fear and grow old therein. And this is, um, you, you made the comment in a previous uh, podcast, and of course I, I make the joke incessantly because I am a cradle Catholic that I don't, uh, I don't read the scriptures as much as I should. This is from chapter 2 of uh, Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, depending on which way you want to uh, pronounce that. And uh, it, it's, it, it's a very powerful <laughs> phrase that really struck me when I read it. Uh, not for the same reasons that you were uh, talking about with regard to Gen X, but it, basically it's a way of saying, suck it up. I mean, God is, is providing all the graces you need at this point in time. And if you are uh, suffering temptations and crises and trials, it's because he loves you in the same sense. It, there, there's a phrase somewhere else in the Bible with regard to being tried in the fire mm-hmm. and and the whole idea of... of and I think it was probably from an e- from one of these Protestant type emails that was passed around, but it is legitimate. It really is in the Bible about how you know a, a phrase about about trying the silver and fire. So so are men tried in in in, in the in the in the fire of temptation. And somebody trying to understand this passage went and talked to a silversmith and said, "How do you know when you're purifying silver and fire?" that it's actually purified at this point. And he said, well, that's easy. I can see my reflection in it because all the impurities are gone. That's a pretty Mm -hmm. powerful realization when you think about that. Yeah. And yeah, life sucks, Gen Xers. I'm one of them. I I get it. Suck it up. I mean, it's a phrase in the military, embrace the suck. That's how you, that's how you get to the goal. You, you can't complain about it and say, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. War is not fair. You've got to embrace that if everything was easy, there wouldn't be any point to doing any of it. Well, and something that that I always thought to myself growing up um, was I, I was always keenly aware of the fact that God does not put people in suboptimal situations if if they can't handle it, if they don't have the potential to handle it. And this is, you know, this gets into grace and everything like that, certainly. But even before I had, you know, obviously gotten anywhere close to to entering the church, even as a child, I was keenly aware of the fact that, you know, I'm here in this situation for a reason. And it, it's obvious that that I have the potential to get out of this to a, to a very positive resolution. And then it, it got to the, to the point eventually, um, where I was able to look, look back at the situation and say, boy, thank God, thank God that, that he put me in that situation because if it had been anyone else, goodness knows that the, the outcome might've been absolutely horrible. 
but that I, I was just this very unique little person who had this ability to process these things that were going on around me and you were given get, the grace get, to process it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Give it, given the grace to process it and, um, to get through it to a not, not completely tragic result. Now, now I'm a sinner just, just like everyone else. And I have regrets in my adult life, no question about it, but boy, you know, I mean, I, I never, I never ended up, you know, killing my own children or, or doing anything like that. Thanks be to God. It could be, it could have been so much worse, so much worse. And so you, you, you look at it and you say, well, thank God that happened to me. Count it all joy. I think that's from uh, the epistle of James, if I'm not mistaken. Count it all joy. Just look at this stuff and say, boy, thanks be to God that, Thank you for putting me in that situation and not somebody else. Uh, but again, that's that kind of speaks to um, virility, the opposite of effeminacy. Um, what's what's the saying about war? If there's going to be war, let it be in my day. Let let it be in my day so that my children don't have to fight it. Or or you know that general idea. Hey man, if something bad has to happen, okay, let it happen to me. And and I, I, I want. I want to step up. I want to, I want to get through this bad situation. I want to power through it. That's just unheard of today because it's all about the, the navel gazing and using, using suboptimal childhood and young adult experiences or, or circumstances as an excuse for sin. Everything is, well, my parents did this, and well, I was traumatized by that. No, I, I, just enough, 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 enough. Grow up, Gen X. Grow up. And, and if you can't get past these, these pathologies, please stop talking. Just, just, just be quiet, go away, and leave your navel-gazing to yourself and spare the rest of us because the, 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 the damage that's being done is just is just awful. I think I mentioned this story on a previous podcast, but uh, it was at the end. It was on a Friday one week years and years ago. A friend of mine was complaining about her week and how everything had gone wrong, and I told her to shut up and stop bragging, and, yeah. which completely took her off guard. And I said, "Look, I didn't have these these trials this week because I wasn't able to face it. Obviously, God is telling me by listening to your story that I'm a wimp this week. I couldn't have handled it." You're a stud. Shut up and stop making me feel in, in, inferior. And for anyone who's who's got these issues where they're saying that they had all these difficulties and whatnot, if you overcame them, why are you complaining? Yep, exactly. What's the problem? What exactly is the problem? The problem is, is that that they just want to go back and they just want to keep picking those scabs and picking those scabs and picking those scabs. Because sadly, I think a lot of these people, they define themselves by this. How, how, how sad is that? Um, you know, move forward, <laughs> D define yourself by how you live your life today. You know, this just going back and constantly picking these scabs. So, so unhealthy. And, you know, it, it by now the gen X generation um, there, the elder people in the Gen X generation now are goodness in their, in their fifties flirting with 60, which is kind of weird to think about. Um, <clears throat> and they, they all kind of, um, 
reinforce each other, it seems to me, that there's just this entire culture of everybody sitting around navel-gazing, um, pissing and moaning and complaining about, you know, their horrible childhoods and their horrible parents and this, that, and the other. And it's just this, this feedback loop that just keeps going and going and going. And we can go in what, what feeds into all of this Facebook, um, all of this crap. And, and to some extent, I think it is true that this ability for people, um, to just hang out all of their dirty laundry on the internet for people to see. And then that generates the, Oh, poor you, uh, uh, you know, all of this, this just completely superficial, um, feedback response that people can get by putting stuff on the internet. Um, the, the whole thing is very unhealthy. I, was it you that sent me a, a link asking the question, you know, is, is social media, is it good or is it bad? And boy, with each passing day, I'm just getting more and more and more convinced that it, that it's bad. This ability for people to just hang out their dirty laundry. Um, it, it's, it's very, very spiritually harmful. It well, seems to me. That ability has never been lacking in the past. The only difference is that rather than broadcasting it to your local social circle, you can broadcast it to the world and go viral. Yeah. I mean, it, in that respect, it's just magnifying the psychosis of somebody who is already weak, I suppose. Um, and you're not doing anybody any favors to keep hitting like on the fact or, or, or you know, thoughts and prayers on somebody who's, who's talking about having a bad day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 don't yeah, think, it, I don't think it's anything novel per se. I mean, we're, we're all running Homo sapien 1.0 for our operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, the, the absence of Facebook or the presence of it doesn't change us who who we are and our and our weaknesses and strengths. It just is going to magnify things, I think. Right, and to think that you know most people didn't even have Facebook ten years ago. I don't think. I, when when did Facebook actually start and come online and <laughs> get to be this ubiquitous thing? Um, I want to say it was created in two thousand four ish. I don't remember yeah. exactly. I mean, it's, it's not very long, so you're right. I mean, it's just a, a matter of magnifying uh, and a, ma- a matter of degree. Um, so yeah, I just, I've, I've always been fascinated by people who, who feel the need to just put every single thought and everything out on the internet. And it might, it might sound strange coming from someone like me who's, you know, got this blog, but um, I don't think you put I, every I, thought you have on the internet, though. Oh, no, not even remotely, remotely, remotely close. Um, and I try to keep, you know, th- the content that I put out, I, I, I try to keep it about, you know, big picture ideas, obviously the work against Islam, very big picture idea, um, you know, the work on diabolical narcissism, big, big, big picture. Um, but this this business of you know, putting all kinds of personal stuff about myself. It isn't just because, you know, I'm, I'm off the grid now and, and, um, don't, don't particularly want people to know where I am, but, um, as I move around, but just, I'm not interested in that anyway. Um, I can't, I guess what it boils down to is I can't imagine how anyone would be interested in listening to me piss, moan, complain, whatever about this, that, or the other. I, I just, it just, 
I can't, I'm, I'm still shocked that people read what I write about, you know, the big picture stuff. I, I understand that I am unique and that I'm blunt and forthright and that there's a level of attraction there, but it's still surprising to me. The notion that anyone would have any interest in, you know, what I did today, what I ate today, blah, stuff like that. And then much less sitting around listening to me complain about personal stuff um, it, it makes me think I, of the BBC version of um, uh, Pride and Prejudice and the old ladies getting together and sharing their diary entries, except that they're doing it globally now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it's it just, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. And I, I guess it it's maybe has something to do with the fact that I've never really felt the need to be um, ratified exteriorly by other people. I have, I have no need for exterior affirmation or hardly any need for exterior affir- affirmation. And, um, oddly enough, I think despite the fact that, you know, you go on the internet and you write these things and you make videos burning the Quran and all that, I am deeply introverted. I'm, I have no problem being alone for, for prolonged periods of time. No problem at all. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not, I'm not antisocial. I think I'm pretty well behaved in public and, uh, seem to be general, generally liked when I'm in public. Um, so I don't know. I just, I just have never understood the, the whole air your dirty laundry thing, but it's, it's a, it's clearly by entertainment, reality television. Um, it started with the Phil Donahue and Oprah and Geraldo talk shows that made the whole genre of, airing your dirty laundry publicly. I think that was when it really first got to be, um, got to be very popular. Um, I've just never had any, any interest in that. There's a lot of stories I could tell and a lot of stuff I, I could say, but I just can't imagine that anyone would have any interest at all. And I, I think it would be just tediously boring. Yeah. I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I also in, in get, terms the, get of, the sense, super nerd, that you're you're on the same page. That you're not you're not a person who sit around sits around and talks about his his dirty laundry and navel gazes. Not that you probably even have any dirty laundry. Literal dirty laundry, yes. Uh, figurative, <laughs> not so much. But ah, um, uh, let's see, um, censorship. I don't know that we really had a lot to cover per se. Just the fact that some German agency said that uh, you were a threat to Der Kinder and um, put you on a list. And um, your Billy Mitchell video, I, I, I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, when I found that, I was pretty excited. It covers so many bases all at once. <laughs> I I just love anymore doing what I can to uh, scandalize and and not scandalize, but post and do things that are politically incorrect. I've got a friend um, here in the local area who is, uh, shall we say, a brown person. And so whenever there's a group standing around talking and uh, there's a new person, one of my little social experiments that I absolutely love to do is um, referring to this to this chap as as you're my favorite brown person and watching, watching the people react to this and seeing the look of, of horror and confusion and questioning. Should I, should I stand up for this person's honor and rebuke this woman who just said this horribly racist thing? And it's just, it's, it's one of my secret little pastimes that I enjoy right now. And 
<laughs> when he when he leaves, I'm gonna it's gonna be sad to see him go. I'm gonna have to find another brown person to do this on. So I highly recommend referring to brown people as as my favorite brown person. With regard to the Billy Mitchell video, though, I mean it, it's something that looks it, okay. It's it's weird in two ways. First off, it, it's clearly one of those things that was done in old Hollywood where you exploit black people to do. I don't know, goofyish kind of roles, but at the same time, mm-hmm. I'm looking at this saying, this is better quality all the way around than anything coming out of Hollywood right now. Yeah. Even yeah. if, even if this was considered, um, low grade exploitation before this is better than what comes out of Hollywood now. Mm-hmm. Who's the idiots. Apparently there's just been some movie, um, released about a black superhero, which, I won't be watching. And apparently it made, <laughs> I heard about it made a whole big bunch of money. Um, did you, did you see this thing? Oh, Black Panther no. or something no, I, like that? I heard about it, but no, I've not heard anything about it other than, I mean, they release these movies, um, you know, like the, uh, Iron Man and all of that Marvel comics, all of those. It seems like they're releasing one of those movies every two or three months. And, uh, that they're all the same. I haven't watched any of those movies in years, but they were just all the same. And you know, another genre of movies that was all exactly the same were the Transformer movies, all exactly the same. Just, well, they're all owned by Disney now. Yeah. Which the evil I empire. Guess makes, I guess makes sense now why Star Wars went down the toilet. It's all owned by Disney. They just want to make uh, videos that that appeal, or from videos, movies that, that appeal to... Um, you know, millennials who is like, oh, that's entertaining. That's fascinating. And have no idea the backstory and everything. Yeah. I saw something that uh, people have started um, saying that the um, Star Wars prequels. So the ones with, you know, Anakin Skywalker as a kid. There are people now saying openly that the George Lucas prequels, episode one, two, and three are, are better than these um new Disney Star Wars sequels. And, and we didn't discuss this at all, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you agree? Yeah. I absolutely agree, yes. Yeah. And 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 the, the prequels were horrible, but they're better yep. than what's coming out now. Yep. Yep. It's sad. Uh, they have to just ruin absolutely everything. But then, you know, this was a topic that we've had on the burner about science fiction in general. And um you know, there, there is a problem with all of this science fiction, and that is it essentially, it seems to me, kind of denies the divinity of Christ, it seems to me. Because if there's all of these um, completely sentient space aliens all over the galaxy and all over the universe— um, what does that say about our Lord's incarnation? And this is something that had always kind of occurred to me and been in the back of my mind since I was a kid and I was watching Star Trek. <laughs> I always had the sense that, you know what, as you're watching Star Trek, in order to buy that this is true, you have to apostatize from the faith. Well, Star Trek was always United Nations in space. That was Gene Roddenberry's idea, as opposed to, um, why did I just blank, uh, George... What's his face with, with Star Wars? Lucas. Lucas. He always said it was a morality tale of good versus evil. Now, the mm-hmm. only question was whether or not this was Eastern mysticism and uh, yin versus yang type of thing. But he right. wasn't he wasn't looking for some kind of transcendent truth per se. He was looking for a morality play for this generation. 
And so in, in, in the larger sense, yes, you could look at, at uh, science fiction and fantasy as being either um, trying to have the agenda of denying Christ and, and uh, denying the unique role that humanity plays in creation, or it could just be a story. I think Star Wars falls into just a story. Well, at least under George Lucas, I have no idea what Disney is doing with it. It's it's so strange, and I don't think Disney has consistency because they, there there are so many Star Wars properties that don't really cooperate with each other in terms of the storyline, or they're not they're not um, in sync. But uh, with with regard to Star Trek, at least I always got the impression they were trying to preach a idea of what a perfected humanity could be if we would just let go of religion, and mm-hmm. that was the that was the less benevolent type of, of uh, fantasy science fiction as opposed to Star Wars was just a fun idea. Yeah. But at least well, in Star think, Wars, you had literal black and white, good and bad. So. Yeah. Um, I think probably when I this idea first popped into my head is there is an episode of Star Trek, the original series, in which um, they're having a wedding. That's how it opens that there's a wedding going on. And of course, Kirk is officiating it. And then something happens and they all have to run off. And then I think the way the episode ends is that the groom um, gets killed. And then the last scene is, is the, you know, the, the, the bride whose wedding to this guy was thwarted, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, the, the reason why this occurred to me as a kid watching Star Trek is because they've got this chapel. And of course, there's no cross or anything. And Kirk is standing there as the, offici- the officiant. And I, I remember thinking as a kid, well, what, what religion is that? And where's Jesus? I mean, you have to keep asking yourself this. Um, with, with Star Trek and all this is where, where's our Lord in all of this? It's a derivative of the um, British Protestant Reformation because you break off from the Catholic Church and the British Navy, that one of the traditions there is the captain of the ship can marry the people uh, if there is a marriage that is going to take place. And of course, mm-hmm. the, the United States Navy or the United States maritime tradition is built on British maritime tradition. And, mm-hmm. of course, Star Trek comes out of the United States, which is based on United States maritime tradition. It goes back to the British British Protestant Reformation, or I should say British British Protestant Revolt. So Right. Exactly. And it's it's just an interesting question. And I think I think it's just an insidious thing. I think it's an insidious, very undercover, very subtle sort of a thing. But at the other hand, like you said about Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek has always been um, fairly hostile. Uh, you know, that's one of the major plot devices of Star Trek is that they stumble upon some planet and there are people and they have some sort of a religion. And it's the job of the of the Federation to liberate these people from their from their uh suppression under under the mythology of religion and all of this. I mean that's that's a very clear motif in Star Trek. <laughs> and then um as you go forward like for example into Deep Space 9, if anybody watched that, that was on in the 90s. 
Um, what that basically revolved around is that there was a space station sitting next to a wormhole and a planet, and the planet was called Bajor, and the religion of the people on the planet of Bajor was that they were worshipping these these shape-shifting beings that lived on the other side of, or inside of the wormhole or something like that. And then it was that there was all of the dynamics of the Bajorans being confronted with the fact of the science of all of this. That, look, this is a race of space aliens. This is a wormhole. This is where these, pe- these your quote unquote gods have come from. And the, of the Bajoran people to still continue on with their religion, even ha- after having been confronted with the science of all of it. Um, and then, of course, um, the quote unquote Pope of the Bajoran religion was an absolutely evil, corrupt woman, um, really odious figure. And, you know, it was just all of this, um, all of this notion of, of liberating people from, from religious belief. You said it exactly right. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of communism in space in a certain sense too. It's a UN in space, communism in in space. It's almost as if the UN and communism aren't that far apart. I was going to say, but you repeat yourself, but you kind of, but I repeat myself. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, it's just, it's, it's an interesting question and I've kind of, in the last few years just started moving away from all of that, all of that science fiction, because you have to realize that what it did is it, is it set people up all through that, that generation, baby boomers, gen X, and now into, into the millennials or whatever you call it. Um, there's just this latent, um, assumption under all of these things that all religion is bullshit and that, nobody actually believes any of this. And of of course there's no Jesus in space. And of course there's no Christianity. There's no Christianity in the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody just very, very comfortably takes all of this for granted. And, um, kind of for that reason, I've just backed away from, from all that science fiction stuff. Well, in terms of art, I mean, I, I guess you can tell a story to try to be propaganda and, and, um, push your own agenda, which I guess, Star Trek seems to lean that direction and or you could just tell a fantastic story which is either just something that's meant to be entertaining or a morality play of good versus evil. Um it makes me think about um other other by the way we we had a theme for tonight but we've just been meandering. But yeah. uh, it's, it's like the the uh, uh Isaac Asimov's uh foundation series. It, it's when I when I read that for the first time, I thought, oh, this is where George Lucas got all of his ideas. And there were implicit ideas of atheism in there, but it wasn't the point. It, it was a, it was more a I, I thought a story of human nature and and the inevitable trajectory of human nature as it uh, projects across time mm-hmm. uh, with with other science fiction uh, add ons and modifications to it. But. In that respect, it's it's more like, you know, to to the degree that any of it is is, is realistic, I would say Star Wars is always has, has, has struck me as always been about good versus evil. Like I don't, I don't know what Disney's going to do with it now. It's everything's everything's new, everything's up in the air now. So it, it's who knows what. But uh, Star Trek always struck me as they've got an agenda. They're going to tell you the way things should be if humans would just be enlightened and let go of religion. Yeah. Yep. I think. 
I think that's the problem with all of these things. In fact, I mean, look, thinking about Star Wars, um, you know, the Force and all that, and the Jedi, that's that's very much a religious motif, you know. Um, but then, what what did they what did Lucas have in the prequels that? midichlorians weren't they like you know mitochondria in the cells or something like that that were sentient and that infused them all with power there was some sort of an explanation oh, <laughs> i'm really gonna come out as a star wars geek here but there 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 are arguments that uh in, in the prequels the the assertion was made that the more midichlorians you had the more power you had in the force and there are some other subsequent revisions of this saying that it was actually the other way around but the point being, yes, there there were there were elements introduced in, in the prequels which made a lot of the Star Wars fans go, What? <laughs> this makes no sense. What are you talking about? But And then also, uh Anakin Skywalker was was supposed to be a quote unquote virgin conception, right? That the Midichlorians were in fact his father? Is is Yeah, there I remember the first time I saw that that uh, movie there I, I thought for a moment i was thinking wait a minute are they blaspheming the immaculate conception and it was one of those things i never quite understood for a while but it, it's in the star wars lore it's they're not well he has no father right not in the same sense as jesus yes he does it, it's in in the larger investigation of the star wars universe yes but we are way off topic <laughs> Seriously, Anakin Skywalker had a had a humanoid father. Not a human father. It was the the Force was his father. But then again, uh, metaphysics. See, in, no, see, no, no, no. Metaphysics mm-hmm. in the Star Wars universe is not like uh, our universe. It wasn't supernatural. It was the Force is actually part of their nature. So, yeah. okay, all right. Well, I'll take your word on that. <laughs> <laughs> Beam me up. Is this podcast over yet? <laughs> Well, we talked about <laughs> we talked about no no Jesus in science fiction, so we can cross that topic off the list. It's been on the list for quite some time. And we've censored the whole topic of censorship apparently. Apparently, maybe we'll get to it in the the next episode. Well, I mean the but whole then, the whole point was that that I wanted to get get across that I thought was interesting there was the fact that a actual agency of an actual government had put you on a list that said you were dangerous. And in terms of whether or not you made it or whether or not this was a dangerous uh, precedent, I, I get the impression, okay, when, when the Southern Poverty Law Center says you're uh, a, a danger that needs to be avoided, that's one thing. That, that's a political group, and they're known to be a, a, a bunch of political hacks. But when an agency of an actual government, which is supposed to be legitimate, puts you on a list, now it becomes a situation where anybody who wants to to censor you but didn't have a legitimate reason can all point to Germany and says, well, the Germans can't be wrong. They follow rules. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's funny. The Germans can't be wrong. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess that's the title of the podcast right there. The Germans can't be wrong. Right. <laughs> oh, no, I've, I've made the I've made the comment that it's always my goal to get you to laugh on every podcast, and I that was quite by accident, but I'll take it. 
that <laughs> yeah you can't plan those things it has to be spontaneous fantastic fantastic the germans can't be wrong i've decided that's the title of this one <laughs> And on that note, the email address for the podcast, if you want to send feedback, comments, suggestions, um, or topics about who else could be wrong, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for ends, benefactors. Uh, oh, this is your part. Um, all days that end in Y, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And please pray for these excellent, excellent priests who are doing this. Um, pray for all priests, but especially the ones who are offering the holy sacrifice for you. Um, some of them are under attack. There's there's no question about that. Um, so please pray for them, and um, please accept my undying gratitude and thanks, especially for my terrible lack of productivity during my illness of the past couple weeks or so. I'm very sorry that I haven't been able to do more, but... I was just laying in bed, staring at the ceiling and hacking and hacking and hacking and hacking. It's just exhausting. All of that coughing is just really, really exhausting. But I'm back and uh, look forward to hopefully daily posts on the website again and Super Nerd and I getting back to at least one podcast a week. And on that point, the Bard Heart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this podcast or previous episodes or our <laughs> wild ramblings and would like yeah. to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more information. And that's what William, Richard, James, Charles, PMJ, and JPG, that sounds like a lot, but we were off for a while. That's what they yeah. all did. So thank you very much for your support. It's greatly appreciated and definitely helps uh, keep the this, this enterprise and operation going. And the Matthew 1720 initiative. The Matthew 1720 initiative, um, fasting two days a week, your choice. I'm doing Tuesdays and Fridays because I think it works logistically the best. Um, and when I fast, I full fast. I don't eat anything. I just have, um, I have a little bit of coffee in the morning and that's pretty much it for the rest of the day. And what the intention is for is that... Bergoglio, anti-pope Bergoglio, be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole past five years be nullified. That Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope over the past five years. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. And that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent, die in a state of grace and also achieve the beatific vision. Anything less than that is an unacceptable, unacceptable um, uh, conclusion to this whole mess. And all things are possible. And please, please enjoin Our Lady under her title of Undoer of Knots, because that's what this is. This is a ginormous, ginormous knot, and it is not um, sufficient for it to be only one-third untied or one-half untied, and it's kind of insulting to Our Lady to hand her a big knot and say, well, just untie it one-third, because it's impossible to undo the whole thing. No, no, go big or go home. Um, if you're going to give her a knot to untie, um, it is befitting her um, to to ask Please untie it all the way, all the way. And if nobody's asking for this, then um, God will not answer this prayer. 
the but more if Gordian, we ask for the more Gordian, it, then the not, we have the a chance. Go ahead. Stepped over you there. The more Gordian knot, the better. The more Gordian, the better. Amen. So this is a big one. This is the probably one of the biggest ones in the two thousand year history of the church. Let's let's hand it to the Blessed Mother and uh, let her take it to her to her son, and let's see if we can't get this thing resolved in our lifetimes. And until next time, I am Super Nerd, and I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. Mm-hmm.